Well, you're listening to the Dogs Program. After that rousing music, the uh, band there for the common man, and uh, the Dogs Program is the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools, and we're here to promote and to defend public education. And we have a website at www.adogs.info. And here is Kim to give us our press release, 1007. Uh, it's an interesting one. There's been a lot in the papers in the last week about how expensive it is for poor parents to put their children back into school. And underlying a lot of this is, in fact, a very big question. Does it really cost $93,000 or approximately between seven dollars and $8,000 a year to send a child to a public school? And does this mean the public education is no longer free? Let's hear about it. Kim, over to you. Thank you, Jean. This is Press Release 1007 from the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools, titled How Free Are Public Schools? In the weeks leading up to the start of the school year, there has been much hype about the cost, not just of private education, but the cost of public education. The assumption behind a great deal of commentary is that public education is no longer free. It can cost up to $93,000 for 13 years or just over $7,000 a year to educate a child in an Australian public school. Does this mean that public schools are no longer free? The ABC Leonie Thorne and national education reporter Claudia Long claim that two new surveys, one from a financial group, another from a charity, shed light on how much education costs are affecting families. Parents are being squeezed by the cost of sending kids to school, whether their children are attempting public or private, according to new, two new studies, and there is new data estimating parents may need to spend thousands of dollars on their child's education, even if they go to a public school. The ABC report taken up by the mainstream media claims that one in four parents say they're struggling to pay bills because of rising education costs. Families are also struggling to afford costs at public schools, such as uniforms and shoes. And sending a child to public school in a capital city from prep to year 12 is now estimated to cost more than $92,000. These estimates blow out to more than $195,000 for Catholic schools and more than $315,000 for independent schools. Meanwhile, a separate survey by the Smith family has revealed parents of public school kids are particularly stressed when it comes to affording the things their children need for education. The charity surveyed more than 2,200 families who used its services and found almost half worried their children would miss out on uniforms and shoes for school this year. One in three said their kids would miss out on excursions, about half said they could not afford digital devices, and one in six said their children would go without internet access. What does this all mean? Are public schools almost half as expensive as Catholic schools? And is public education no longer free? Firstly, the report which produced these figures prepared by Futurity Investment Group a group offering tax-effective life event education bonds designed to help people save for the cost of education. The sample survey was 1,500 people and includes ancillary costs like private tutoring and music lessons. The third most expensive item is electronic devices. The school fees at a public school represent only 4% of the cost. 
According to The Guardian of Friday, 19th of January 2024, Dr. Ange Fitzgerald, a professor in the School of Education at RMIT, said the data appeared to be really inflated. I worked in the public school system as a principal and I know students can access their education for free and good quality education, she said. Government schools have to cover anything to do with students learning within the cost of a school. They can advertise fees, but parents don't have to pay them. I don't think we should be concerned by the data. I'm concerned about data like this making people concerned. It becomes its own energy. Fitzgerald said the futurity figures always surprised her, pointing to the ancillary costs, which were individual family decisions rather than a need. They're lovely add-ons, but not a must-have, she said. Two of the ancillary costs, camps and excursions, she noted, were important to a student's social experience and personal growth, but she said many states and territories had funding schemes in place where families could access up to $300 for the activities. There's mechanisms so students don't miss out, she said. Education is free and there's no reason to pay. Principals and school leaders are working really hard to make sure there are holistic education programs kids can access within the budget. Of particular concern, Fitzgerald said, was the reported spending on outside tuition, outpacing school fees in some sectors, including for Catholic schools. I'm really concerned about it. It's a cycle we don't want to get ourselves into, she said. Not just financially, but students don't need to be going to school all day and then continue outside. We should be valuing young people having free time and engaging with friends. So what is the actual cost to parents of kids attending public schools without including tutoring, music lessons and other optional items? The number can vary depending on the number of kids enrolled, schooling level, voluntary school fees and other contributions school camp costs and how much you are willing to spend on a computer or other devices. And now for the dog's comment. The principle of a free public education is still alive and well, although the reality can be more complicated for poor parents. The cost of uniforms, books, excursions, optional extras and even sufficient nutrition are ongoing worries for poor families. However, there is evidence that charities like the Smith family, which was established and supported by public school teachers, are attempting to ameliorate the situation. And the need for every child to have access to a computer and the internet in the digital age indicates the need for government policy in action. However, parents should be wary of inflated figures, investment groups and media commentary which places public education in the same expense bag as private Catholic or wealthy private schools. A public school cannot refuse to enrol any child on the basis of their parents' inability to pay an education fee or any other financial requirement. A public school cannot and does not discriminate against any child on the basis of their ability to pay. Back to you, Jean. Yes, well, um, although public schools are still still free, in, in theory, in principle, if not always in reality, a lot of parents are really, really doing it tough in the coming weeks. And here is Andy to read us an interesting article about this. Over to you, Andy. Thanks, Jean. As school costs rise, charities and community groups are helping parents get through. On a humid summer morning, a long line of families stretches down a central Queensland street, each patiently waiting to purchase discounted school supplies. Organisations and charities are seeing more families seeking back-to-school financial help. New data shows even a public school education can require thousands in additional expenses. 
Smith Family data shows many disadvantaged families are struggling to afford essentials. Among them is single mum of two, Grace Hogan. She knows the overwhelming feeling of looking at a book list, wondering how to afford the expense. For the past few years, the Mount Morgan local has purchased discounted supplies from a local initiative known as School Savvy. But before discovering the initiative, Ms Hogan would lay-by items throughout the year and slowly pay them off. Usually it would cost you a couple of hundred dollars. Here, you're getting it for next to nothing, she said. School supplies, like everything, have definitely been going up. Her observations have been supported by new data estimating parents may need to spend thousands of dollars on their child's education, even if they go to a public school. And with costs rising, charities and organisations are seeing a surge in demand for back-to-school support. The school-savvy shops, run by Catholic Care Central Queensland, sell books, stationery, school uniforms, bags and water bottles at subsidised prices. Sometimes even free haircuts are on offer. The pop-up shops have expanded to new locations this year, with organisers noting a big increase in customers during the past two years. Children's charity The Smith Family, which supports 62,000 students across the country, has also seen growing demand for its services. Families get referred to its service by schools, which Chief Executive Doug Taylor says are seeing people struggling with costs who may not have in the past. Our school principals absolutely tell us they are seeing more families, and in particular new types of families, who are looking for different support from the school and organisations such as the Smith family, he said. A survey of 2,200 families supported by the charity found almost 90% were worried about being able to afford the school supplies required for the year. We know what's behind that. The cost of living pressures and the fact that people who are on low incomes find it very hard to absorb the increase in these costs of daily essentials, Mr Taylor said. From uniforms to excursions, it all adds up. And as the school year creeps closer, parents across Australia are nervously adding up how they will manage to pay for everything their kids need for school. Sydney mum Sandra Woodrow has had difficulties covering school costs for her 10-year-old son Zach, which intensified when his father passed away and she became a solo parent. Zach rides his scooter to school each morning in the western suburbs, but finding the money to get him everything he needs keeps Sandra up at night. You want your kids to get as much as they can out of life and not miss out on things. And when your child can't go to something, you feel like a sack of poo, she said. And it's the little things they miss out on. Uniforms have been particularly expensive, especially with Zach at an age where he is growing quickly. It all adds up when it comes to his shirts, his shorts, his tracky dacks, his shoes, she said. He goes through his shoes like there's no tomorrow, and you've got to buy him shoes that you know are going to last, and they're not cheap. The Smith family's recent survey found many of the families the charity supported had similar concerns. Almost half worried their children would miss out on uniforms and shoes for school this year, and one in three said their kids would miss out on school excursions due to the cost. Emma Richardson from Bajul in central Queensland has four school-aged children and estimated their stationery would set her back about $500. I spent only about $100 today at the Rockhampton pop-up shop, so it's really good, she said. It helped me out a lot, and I pretty much wouldn't survive without it. Public schools becoming you get what you pay for. There are also growing expectations on public school parents to fund laptops, excursions and holiday camps. According to Sally Larson, a former school teacher and now senior lecturer at the University of New England, this is fueling inequality. Education should be like a social good rather than something you have to purchase and I think in Australia we're sort of moving away from that and we're moving more to the system where you get what you pay for, Dr Larson said. That increases inequities like social inequities and it increases stratification at different social groups into different school sites. Missing out on basic items can have many impacts on children, from isolation to affecting their learning, Mr Taylor said. 
Not having those essentials means that a young person is not able to make the most of their education, but it can often mean that they don't feel a part of the school community, he said. Mr Taylor said while programs like those run by the Smith family are an option, there are other avenues families can check to see if they can get help with school costs. The Commonwealth is currently operating a student school broadband initiative, which is a great opportunity for families who are not connected to broadband to access that for free, because technology access and digital access is a vital part of a contemporary education, he said. State governments provide voucher programs for families, particularly on low incomes, so they can be accessed. For Zach, these vouchers were the difference between him learning to swim and not having those life-saving skills. However, Sandra said the value of the vouchers had decreased, and she would like to see governments provide more support to cover necessities. For now, she's doing the best she can. It's just Zach and I against the world. And back to you, Jean. Well, thank you, Andy, and now we'll have a bit of a It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason for screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got. But it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Oh, well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program and we're still on the theme of back-to-school costs. And here is Sorrel. Um, sometimes families, well, people who are in wealthy families have just got no idea on the impossible decisions that some, some parents have got to make. So over to you, Sol. Thanks, Jean. So this article is by Mary Ward and is entitled Impossible Decisions as Families Prepare for New School Year. Social service organisations have called on the state government to reinstate its back-to-school voucher program as more families reach out for financial help due to the rising cost of living pressures. A Sun-Herald analysis of stationary lists published on Sydney public school websites found some had asked for more than $180 worth of school supplies for a year three student at the start of term, including sets of headphones and student dictionaries. Low-income families will struggle to afford back-to-school supplies, says social services. Uniform costs have also increased. A basic Lowe's primary school boys' uniform of a short sleeve shirt and shorts now costs $85, while standard Clark's lace-up shoes retail for $110. At the end of last year, a finder report found the average annual cost of school supplies for a primary school student, including a uniform and electronic devices, split over the years of use was $684. The analysis was based on children attending public, Catholic and independent schools. 
the average cost for a high school student was $1,132, including $469 for a uniform, $300 for electronic devices, and $278 on textbooks. In its first budget, New South Wales Labor announced it would not repeat the previous government's 2023 back-to-school voucher program, a cost-of-living assistance package that gave all parents three $50 vouchers to subsidise school supplies, uniforms and technology. After previously considering axing active and creative kids' vouchers, it instead means-tested the children's activity subsidy, limiting it to children whose families received a family tax benefit, approximately 600,000 of the 1.35 million school-aged children in the state from February. New South Wales Council of Social Services Acting Chief Executive Ben McAlpine called for $150 back-to-school voucher program to also be reinstated for low-income earners. He said families, particularly those on low incomes and living below the poverty line, were under incredible financial strain as cost-of-living pressures and rising interest rates squeezed budgets. Our members are struggling to keep up with the increase in demand for their services, and many report seeing new families that were previously getting by okay, he said. What New South Wales families need right now is more support, not less. A Smith family spokesperson said the charity was seeing families who were already struggling financially face further difficulties due to the cost of living pressures. This is particularly relevant at back-to-school time, with expensive items like uniforms, laptops and new shoes putting pressure on already stretched budgets, they said, noting that families were being forced to make impossible decisions in the current economic climate. Sometimes that means prioritising a meal on the table over a school excursion or an electricity bill over a new pair of school shoes. With housing, food and power costs all rising rapidly, these impossible decisions are becoming more prevalent, they said. The Smith family supports 62,000 students across Australia with school costs through its long-term educational support program, Learning for Life with plans to increase that number to 100,000 students by 2027. A spokesperson for New South Wales Education, Minister Prue Carr, said the back-to-school voucher was a 193 million one-off cash splash by the former government, which has not been budgeted for this year. Launched during an election year and conspicuously badged as a gift from the then Premier, it was never intended to continue beyond June 30 this year, they said. There was nothing in the budget for it. They said the state government was supporting parents by retaining the Active and Creative Kids program with a means test, describing this as a fairer and more sustainable way to help families with the cost of living. The state government has also announced $8 million in funding to expand the number of schools taking part in Food Bank's Breakfast for Health free breakfast program from 500 to 1,000 over the next four years. According to Finder's analysis, parents of New South Wales public school students pay some of the lowest voluntary contribution fees in the country, higher than only those in the Northern Territory, and less than half of what was requested in Victoria. The average New South Wales public primary school asked for a voluntary contribution of $168, according to the report, 
whilst the average high schools was 339. Some very interesting numbers mentioned in that article. Now back over to you, Jean. Well, we hope you're still listening to the Dogs program because here is Dale with a, a bit of a fun article from Lindsay Connors um, who's had a, uh, a meteoric career in the academic and other world, uh, other other worlds and is a, a fairly good journalist. Um, and I think I'm not sure really that she's a public education supporter. I think this is because I'm a bit long in the tooth and I have a memory back in the 70s and 80s of, of Lindsay Connors um, and Joan Kerner, because they were good friends, um, making sure that any anti-state aid um, policies in the Labor Party and in the parents' organisations were scotched. Um, and she had uh, friends in the uh, in the private system, but in her latter days, she has uh, clucked a great deal, and very interestingly, about how um, how wealthy schools in particular are greedy. So here is Dale with Lindsay Connor's thoughts on summer heat cicadas and rising fees in private schools. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. I've got an article from The Conversation and it's written by Lindsay Connors. Summer, heat chicadas and rising fees in private schools. Private school fees, fee rises are as intrinsic to an Australian summer as the screech of chicadas. And instead of relaxing in the holiday heat, I find myself plagued with questions about whether or how to respond to the former. Do these fee rises even matter? Should I be pleased to see that prohibitive fees in these schools enable them to provide at least some principals and teachers with the level of remuneration that should apply to the teaching force across our entire system? Why not leave it at this and go back to reading my novel? I try to convince myself that there may be a good case for doing just this. For a start, this is news of fee hikes in the top private schools, reported in the Sydney Morning Herald on January 9th and 11th, is much the same as for the past 20 years or more. Year after year, their fees rise. Whether there's been high or low inflation, increases or decreases in their public funding, the fee rises are inexorable. On a more serious note, headlines around prodigal fee rises, plunge pools and Scottish castle-like libraries draw public attention away from the entire school system and the toxic features of its operation. The recent expert panel report to the Commonwealth to inform a better and fairer education system spelled out that the quasi-market-based nature of the Australian education system entrenches disadvantage. From a personal perspective and in my private life, I can't seem to avoid being grumpy about an increase in salaries to principals and teachers whose choice is to work in schools that are not doing their fair share of the heavy lifting of our school system. And this mood darkens as I read the pronouncements from private school authorities and lobbyists that their fees have to rise in response to an agreement reached last year that will make beginning and top 
top of scale teachers in New South Wales, the nation's best paid teachers in public schools, and deliver increases to all others. These are teachers in the schools that are doing far more than their fair share of the heavy lifting. Hoping to avoid having to spend any more time thinking about this issue so that I can get back to some light reading, I try again to convince myself that there may be some good reasons to ignore news about fee rises in private schools. I recall past conversations with teachers from high-fee independent schools which suggested that their working lives were not always a bed of roses. During formal consultations earlier in my work life as a member of Commonwealth, consultative and advisory bodies, I heard their complaints that the pressure from parents could be crippling. To quote one teacher, they expect us to turn every goose into a swan. I also tell myself that it is possible that to pay attention to fee rises in private schools charging around $50,000 could be to give them the kind of attention and publicity on which they thrive. As a mature age citizen, I recognise that the actions of those private school authorities which charge exorbitant fees are being taken within the policy framework set by governments in this country. I live several blocks away from one such school where the local traffic and ambience has been disrupted by the construction of a cavernous underground parking facility. An abundance of heavy earth moving and other building equipment has been working on this site for more than a year as part of what the school describes as its program of education renewal. However irrelevant to educational outcomes an underground parking facility may be, the fact is that this school is working within the scope afforded it by governments. The fact that this equipment is working at this school site rather than on the construction of affordable housing or support for devastated areas elsewhere reflects flaws in public policy frameworks arising from cumulative decisions by successive governments. Should we simply accept the fact that, in our democratic society, people with the financial capacity and desire to do so are entitled to spend it on high private school fees, and that these schools will spend their untypically high level of resources on lavish buildings and facilities to compete with each other and with other schools for student enrolments drawn almost exclusively from high-income families? Yes, I believe that we must. The reality is that there is barely a country in the world that does not have some tradition of schools of this kind and their existence precedes the advent of democratic governments and their provision of public schooling by, by centuries. The answer to the question of why Australian governments further expand the coffers of these institutions lies in the realm of base politics. I accept the realities of living in a democracy where shared decisions require compromises to achieve the consensus necessary to progress. Compromise between different sets of values and priorities is necessary, but too much of it can compromise the entire school system, undermining the democratic values on which it should be based, and, in the end, weakening democracy itself.
Playing fields, well-being centres, swimming pools and theatres are one thing, but there is a clear line to be drawn between the entitlement of parents to invest privately in the education of their own children and an entitlement of schools which can use their financial capacity, drawn from a combination of exclusionary fees and recurrent grants from governments, to pay above award salaries in order to attract a disproportionate share of the nation's teaching force. The independent school sector may not have caused a teacher shortage, but it has certainly contributed to it. Standalone schools lack the capacity for efficiencies and economies of scale which are available to systemic schools. Taken as a whole, the private school sector already consumes more than its fair share of teachers. And as Chris Bonner has demonstrated, if Australia's teachers were more equitably distributed, then the current teacher supply problem would be significantly eased. Governments need to recognise the nation's teaching force as a national asset. It is teachers who provide students with access to the understandings, knowledge and skills built into the school curriculum. Teachers are to the nation's school system what what the waters of the Murray-Darling River system are to the environment. Democratic governments surely have an obligation to protect the human rights of all Australian children to a fair share of the quantity and quality of the nation's teaching force and of access to the benefits of the full range and depth of the curriculum. One option for governments, both Commonwealth and state, would be to make public funding for all non-government schools authorities contingent upon full transparency of their private incomes from all sources, including trusts, foundations, etc., and to withdraw all public funding from those which pay over-award salaries to principals and teachers. A further and more rational option, in my view, would be for the two levels of government to work together to achieve agreement that the registration of private schools by states and territories would be contingent upon their paying school leaders and teachers in strict conformity with the relevant salary awards, no higher and no lower. Reflecting again on past career experience of national consultations, I recall that years ago, when computers were first being introduced into the school curriculum, the then Director General of Education in one state found that it was impossible to get a teacher of computing studies to a public school outside the capital city because they were all snapped up by the wealthy private schools. In concluding this essay, I need to confess that I have sometimes found the issue of fee rises in cashed up private schools quite amusing. I may from time to time and in the company of family and close friends, have gloated at the fact that on some measures of HSC success, the public high school attended by grandsons outranks the aforementioned school with the subterranean parking. This is unworthy when I know some of these ranking measures are a bit dodgy. I have definitely been guilty of expressing incredulity at the contradiction between the statements and actions of some of these schools and the religious values which they profess. While this form of amusement may provide personal therapy, it's not appropriate to the gravity of the situation.
For it is chilling to read in the report from the expert panel referred to earlier that Australian schools have some of the highest levels of social segregation among all OECD countries and that this trend is only worsening over time and that 98% of the nation's public schools are still being funded below their schooling resource standard agreed as appropriate by governments, while the bulk of non-government schools combine their public and private resources to operate above that standard. Providing some students with an impoverished schooling puts them at risk as individuals. It also entails risk to the wider society through planting the seeds of social division. It is not acceptable that a democracy allows principles that can only be described as a form of social Darwinism to drive any part of its school system. In the context of teacher shortage, it is unconscionable that the that Australian governments should be licensing and enabling a small but powerful group of cashed-up private schools to behave like apex predators, capturing more than their share of teachers at the expense of schools where they are far more sorely needed. I live in hope that we will elect a Commonwealth government that restores the principles that existed in legislation from the Whitlam era until it was erased by the Howard government. The primary obligation in relation to education for governments is to provide and maintain government school systems that are of the highest standard and are open without fees or religious tests to all children. But I am now of an age where it will need to happen before too long if I am to have any hope of having enough time left to relax and read my way through the books piled up on my bedside table. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you very much, Dale. And um, that was a fun article, wasn't it? And uh, now we'll have a break. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855am digital and 3cr.org.au. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe for three years teachers have had their qualifications their pay their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government I'm a proud product of a government funded primary school education and of a government funded secondary school education 
Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. Our education is not for profit! Our education is not for profit! You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. listening to the dogs program and uh, now we're going to talk about students uh, uh, students in all schools I suppose but also in public schools uh, Trevor Cobalt has been having fun with some OECD material and other material and discovered that uh, Australian students don't take PISA tests very seriously these are international uh, tests that are supposed to rank them internationally and uh, he wrote a very good article on his website, the Save Our Schools website, and his information was taken up by Val Baden. You know, I think it was The Guardian. So Maddie, Maddie's got a fun article for us here. Australian students aren't trying in the PISA exams, and perhaps they should be congratulated for it. Over to you, Maddie. Thanks, Jean. Australian students aren't trying in the PISA exams. They should be congratulated for their disdain. This is an article by Van Badham, and it was written on the 12th of January, 2024. News this week revealed that a full three-quarters of Australian high school students admit they aren't fully trying in their PISA tests. File under this category of water being wet or the Pope's Catholicism not being much of a shock. The Save Our Schools Coalition has surveyed the Year 9 students about shared attitudes towards the Program for International Student Assessment exams that are taken annually. The tests exist to create international ranking tables for reading, science and mathematics. The idea is that the national education systems can have some means of benchmarking to establish if their educational policy and investment is yielding comparable results with the rest of the world. In reality, these tests create a data set that provokes a lot of media jingoism or an educational theme if countries do well and hysterical condemnation if they don't of one, government incompetence, two, bureaucratic failure, three, wokest teacher activist introducing cultural Marxism to young minds through secret mind tunnels, four, Teachers' unions or five kids today being lazy, lacking gumption. Tick own box, yell loudly. The latest PISA scores were released in December. Pity the poor reactionary right-wing columnists at other publications who are instructed to manufacture a crisis from the contradictory news that Australia's Year 9 students had climbed into a top 10 PISA ranking among OECD nations. Hooray! while managing to simultaneously continue in a longer-term trend of national decline in terms of our scores. Boo. It's political correctness gone mad, or diversity policy fire every teacher immediately. Personally, I think the most meaningful information to come out of the PISA assessment is the revelation that Australian kids don't give a shit about it. Yes, there might be a bureaucratic appetite for data, stats, rankings, comparisons and tables to prove, argue or reject the policy prejudices of the day. 
Unfortunately, Australia's students have correctly identified that these tests are not really about them, as they are the jockeying circle jerk of distant adults, and they should all be congratulated for responding with appropriate disdain. Full marks from me. <clears throat> Quote, my best friend and I competed to come last, absolutely last, in the school subjects we found boring as a show of joint resistance. Anyone surprised that kids deprioritize, mock and scorn those things they're obliged to do they do not really value should spend more time with kids or remember their own Australian teenagedom beyond the retrofitted image of respectability confected around it just to be judgy about the rising generations. This piece of story appealed to me as a reminder of my own year nine when my best friend and I competed to come last, absolutely last, in the school subjects we found boring as a show of joint resistance to all the selective school competitive culture we found oppressive and unbearable. Ah, I tangibly remember the true sense of achievement I felt when I beat her four to three. I also smiled remembering the kid who wrote Fishbone in the band's signature font on the paper where there was supposed to be an essay about the Peloponnesian War. There's an apocryphal story that one of my public high school's finest moments was the year, unwisely in the 1990s, that a new uniform code was introduced, banning the boys from having long cabane-like hair. The boys responded with a mass head shaving and the aggressive-looking crops ensured that such a code was never mooted again. There is, and has never been, anything worse than being a tryhard. It's also worth remembering the life-changing moments when one of those damned commie teachers draws on every ounce of their training and remaining physical energy to get a kid to understand how a set of information is actually relevant to their lives. The joy in the staff room at the school where I was working on the day when a desperately damaged kid suddenly worked out being good at maths would help him better pursue his dream of selling cars. That moment, when last in four subjects, Van Batum was told even she could make a career of writing if she developed the discipline to master an essay. My best friend, who turned a penchant for dressing up in visual art into an extraordinary career as a costume scholar. These trajectories of education, experience and enlightenment don't offer metrics assessed, assessed by PISA tests. And perhaps the question should be raised if the opportunity for international benchmarking might, more, might be more sensibly invested in comparing national capacities for addressing the problems all of the world's teenagers share. Like learning how to handle rejection, or regulate their emotions, or resist disinformation. These are daydreams. We will be stuck with relentless assessments of no meaning to their participants as long as the assessments have meaning to the adults around them. Even so, I think there's cause for national pride in our true PISA results after the Save Our Schools survey's revelations. Are our kids underperforming alone? No. It's curious to note that in their similarly prosperous sovereign economies, the Danish, Swedish, German, Swiss, Belgian, Norwegian, British, Austrian and Singaporean teens are also not so much falling behind as phoning it in. The cultural contexts for why this is certainly why this is certainly deserve assessment of its own. Locally, perhaps, we may make a well-informed guess. Our kids might be brilliant. They may be contrarian. They may be dopey, likely all three.
but in a country where self-effacing mockery of establishment anxieties is so ingrained a part of the national character, we have, thanks to Pisa, the powerful suggestion that they may indeed be Australian. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you, Maddie. And uh, and now we're going overseas to the United States and to France. Here is Jeff for you. Thanks, Jean. And this week we're going to an article from the Network for Public Education in the States. Um, it's available via the Diana Ravitch blog. Um, and this item is from January the 11th, 2024, and it's by Dr. Mike McGuire. And it, his article's called The Billionaire Agenda Behind the Dark Money That Helped Elect Three New Denver School Board Members in November 23. Dr. Mike McGuire provides an analysis of how dark money influenced a local school board race and how that implicates the City Fund, an organisation busy in far more places than Colorado. Recent coverage of the Denver Public School Board race would seem to indicate that the public had it, had had it with the previous school board. For those that voted, that may be the case, as they overwhelmingly supported three new board members who ran as a ticket to bring about their definition of change. More safety, more academics and more effective school board. And a more ex- uh, effective school board. But in reality, the goals of those funding the campaigns for the newly elected board members go way beyond these three platform topics. The three were funded heavily by an independent expenditure which outspent their opponents by over 5 to 1 thanks to a nearly $1.44 million of dark money from outside the city. This amount was nearly twice the amount of money given to the political action campaigns of the reform candidates in 23 as compared to money given by similar reformer groups in 2019. Local news media explained that the dark money came primarily from City Fund, a national organisation that favours charter schools and school autonomy. However, City Fund is led and managed by people who have a much broader goals, set of goals, in addition to promoting autonomy and innovation for public and charter schools. The people connected with City Fund have been working behind the scenes to change how public education takes place in Denver, in Colorado, and across the nation for years, and not just in the most recent DPS school board race. Denver citizens should know that who the people are that funded the school board in 2023 campaign, their allegiances to other organisations and individuals, and the long-term vision that these groups have for public education. Formed in late 2017, City Fund received funding from a number of foundations who are committed to privatising public education. The Hastings Fund, the Arnold Foundation, the Dell Foundation, the Gates Foundation, the Walton Family Foundation and the Bulmer Group. In 2018, a leaked presentation described how City Fund planned to use its $200 million investment to increase charter school representation up to 50% in over 40 cities across the country. Denver was cited as a model district for this movement, along with New Orleans and Washington, D.C., since over half of the DPS schools were already functioning as either charter or innovation schools. This governing system is named the portfolio model, since the focus is for school boards to manage their community's portfolio of educational service offerings by divesting less public school productive schools and adding more promising ones, they say. In the past several decades, based primarily on test score results, Denver unloaded over 48 neighbourhood schools and opened more than 70 charter schools and over 50 innovation schools. 
and there are links and the article article does go on from there. But it's uh, about how the dark money in America is destroying or trying to destroy public education. Now for something very different, I'm going to nip across to the world, to the not the ditch, but a bit further, another ditch, to France. And this article came to us from Le Monde on Tuesday, January the 15th, oh, sorry, Monday, January the 15th. And it is written by uh, Geoffroy Van de Hassat. You have to pr- forgive my pronunciations of French. My schoolboy French is a long time ago. And it is the French education minister is under fire over a swipe at public schools. And it goes, Emily Uder Castaret said her children were attending private school because there had been loads of teaching hours without a serious replacement teacher at her son's public school. But news reports cast doubts on her version of the story. France's new education minister, Emily Udera Castera, is coming under increasing pressure over her decision for her children to attend a private school in a row overshadowing President Emmanuel Macron's attempt to launch his second term with a reshuffle. Opponents have questioned her insistence that she send one child to a private school over short-staffing at his public establishment in an increasingly bitter and personal dispute. She said she had chosen to go private because of loads of teaching hours without a serious replacement teacher at her son's public school. Speaking to reporters on her first visit to a school as minister, she said she had been fed up like hundreds of thousands of families across France. Udera Castera was one of the main winners in last week's reshuffle, with the former French junior, junior tennis champion given the education ministry alongside her existing portfolios as sports minister. Heading the new super ministry, she'll be leading preparations for the 2024 Olympics in Paris, as well as handling one of the most sensitive issues in French politics. All three sons of Udera Castera, who is married to the president of French farmer giant Sanofi Frédéric Uder have instead attended a prestigious Stanislas school, a Catholic institution near her home in Paris. The private school has been under investigation by the Education Ministry since last year over press reports of homophobic and sexist behaviour. But the newspaper Liberation reported Sunday that Udara Castera, son, has not been affected by staffing gaps at public school, citing the nursery school teacher who had his class in 2009. The family, in fact, chose to move the child to the private school because the public one would not bump him up a year, the teacher said. Udaya Castera categorically denies the claims reported by Liberation. Her office told Agence France Presse, We have to close this chapter of personal attacks and personal life. The minister herself appealed on a Monday morning visit to Paris school, saying she had tried to respond as sincerely as possible. Teachers' unions already fuming that education has been merged into a multiple ministry, and the political opposition have seized on the report to launch a broadside against the new minister. It's a double fault to the minister. This match is starting off really well, said Jelaine David, spokesperson for primary schools teachers union SNUIPPFSU, referring to Udera Castera's earlier tennis career. The new minister is scheduled to meet union representatives from Monday, her office said. If the minister really lied, she has no place at the head of the education ministry. 
Rodrigo Arenas, an MP for the hard-left LFI party and former head of the Nationwide Parents' Federation, wrote on Twitter, The Udera Castera row has sucked the air out of Macron's hope that a new smaller ministerial team around the youngest ever Prime Minister Gabriel Attal, 34, could help regain his administration's momentum. So, anyway, if you excuse my terrible pronunciations, it seems that the Minister of Education in France has got herself in hot water for choosing to put her child in a private school and then lying about the reasons she did it. And that, in France, causes an outcry because uh, most of France is uh, a public school, very proud of their public schools in France. And um, so it remains to be seen how that turns out. Anyway, with that, I'll pass back to you, Jean. Thanks, Jeff. And now Andy has got our great state school, the oldest school in Victoria. Over to you, Andy. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's Great State School of the Week is Essendon Primary School. A little bit of history. In 1850, uh, the school was founded as the Pasco Vale National School No. 483 in July 1850. The school was originally situated on the banks of the Mooney Ponds Creek near the junction of Five Mile Creek. In the 1860s, uh, the original building and site was sold and a new structure was built in Fletcher Street. The school was renamed and became Essendon Common School No. 483 on the 17th of August 1863. In 1875, due to rapid population growth, a new slate roof brick building was erected on the corner of Raleigh and Nicholson Streets. And in 1917, an infant block was added. In the 20s, uh, significant additions to the school were added. The building was officially opened by the Governor of Victoria, His Excellency the Right Honourable Earl of Stradbroke, in 1922. A monument dedicated to the memory of victims of the First World War was erected in the school grounds in 1923 by the Old Boys Association of the School. And in 1970, the name of the school changed to Essendon Primary School. And here we are in the 2020s, and Essendon Primary School is still in operation. The original school bell still stands on the grounds. Now, here's the principal's welcome. Thank you for your interest in Essendon North Primary School. Essendon North Primary School pursues excellence in developing global learners and leaders who strive to exceed expectations. We maximise the potential of all, empowering independence, excellence, innovation and engagement with the world. Our school has an international accreditation with the Council of International Schools, CIS, and is authorised as an international baccalaureate world school, offering the Primary Years Program, IBPYP. These are schools that share a common philosophy, a commitment to high-quality, challenging international education that Essendon North Primary School believes is important for our students. You are warmly invited to tour our school facilities and visit our school on our open days. Please contact our school's office to arrange a tour with me. I look forward to our partnership and am truly excited with the directions, possibilities and opportunities for education at Essendon North Primary School. And that's a statement from Kate Barletta, the school principal. Now let's look at some facts and figures from Akara. The school has 469 pupils. The ICSIA value of the school is 1,143, above the average of 1,000. 
This is a well-heeled community. 59% have parents from the upper 25% in income, 26% in the second highest, 10% from the third quartile, and 4% from the poorest 25% of the community. But 54% of the students speak a language other than English, and 1% are of Indigenous parentage. This is a school full of advantaged students with a dedicated principal and teachers. It costs the taxpayer $12,191, about the Gonski Resource Standard, to educate a student at this school. The school receives $1.1 million from the federal government and $4.1 million from the state government, $360,000 from fees and $146,000 from private fundraising. But the capital grants in the last three years for the old school have only been $165,000. All this public and private money is money well spent. Congratulations to the principal, teachers and pupils in this oldest surviving public primary school in Victoria. Well, congratulations to our Essendon Primary and um, our time has gone. We've enjoyed it. We hope you've enjoyed it too. And it's just left for me to thank our wonderful producer, Dale, and also our presenters, Sorrel and Kim and Jeff and Andy and uh, Dale herself and Maddie. And from all of us at 3CR, it's bye for now. And if you want to find out more about us, remember our website at www.adogs.info. But bye for now.
ten years dead. I never died, says he. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.